and welcome to the podcast of TechEU. I am your host, Andre Degler, and today we are going to talk about the European Commission's investigation into Amazon, and then we will also hear an interview with a genomics startup LiveBeat, recorded by Robin Wouters. And before we dive in, I've got a brief housekeeping announcement to make. So I am about to take a few weeks break from my working duties, which include uh, this podcast, and I will be back somewhere in August. This means that in the meantime, from the next week on, you will be greeted by Robin Wouters, editor of TechU and one of the original hosts of this podcast. Please be nice to him. Now, let's kick off this episode with a recap of some of the most important European tech news of this week with our reporter Annie Musgrove. Hi, I'm Annie Musgrove of TechEU, and here are some of the most important news stories in European tech. This past week, we tracked more than 2.2 billion euros in funding for European startups. The biggest announced deal of the week was the upcoming funding round by the online supermarket Ocado. As reported by the Financial Times, the company plans to, quote, raise more than one billion pounds of fresh equity and debt as it seeks to capitalize on a surge of interest during the coronavirus crisis. Ocado described COVID-19 pandemic as a catalyst that's driving consumers to ordering groceries online. The Financial Times also notes that it wasn't consumer sales that's been driving Ocado's share price, but, quote, the commercialization of its intellectual property through licensing deals with other food retailers. Another major funding announcement came from Travelport, a UK travel technology firm. Skift reported that the company, quote, had received commitments for 500 million US dollars in financing from its private equity owners, Cirrus Capital, and the private equity affiliate of Elliott Management, Evergreen Coast Capital. In addition to that, Travelport, quote, has received a line of funding it could tap for up to an additional 500 million dollars. JustEatTakeaway.com has officially confirmed that it's acquiring the US-based food ordering and delivery company, Grubhub. TechCrunch reports that the all-share deal is worth 7.3 billion US dollars. As per the report by Ingrid Lunden, quote, the acquisition is not just a big piece of M&A in the food delivery space. It also represents a major competitive swipe, as Uber Eats had also been trying to acquire Grubhub. Just Eat Takeaway said the combined operation, which processed almost 600 million orders in 2019, will have over 70 million combined active users globally. Matt Maloney, CEO and founder of Grubhub, will join the JustEatTakeaway.com management board and will lead the combined businesses across North America. Yitzi Grun, CEO and founder of JustEatTakeaway.com, will lead the combined businesses globally. Lilium, a German startup that's working on an all-electric flying taxi, has become a unicorn. Bloomberg reports that the company has raised 35 million US dollars from Bailey Gifford & Co. The post-money valuation of the startup was over 1 billion US dollars, according to the unnamed sources of Bloomberg. The investor also happens to be, quote, the largest investor in Tesla after its billionaire owner, Elon Musk. The capital injection brings the startup's total investment to date to more than 375 million US dollars. Babylon Health, a UK-based health tech startup, has admitted that its GP app suffered a data breach. The BBC reports that Babylon Health, quote, was alerted to the problem after one of its users discovered he'd been given access to dozens of video recordings of other patients' consultations. A follow-up check by Babylon revealed a small number of further UK users could also see other sessions. The firm said it had fixed the issue and notified regulators. The startup also later said that only three people had received access to other customers' recordings and that it had been in contact with everyone involved, quote, to inform them and apologize. The UK's antitrust watchdog has launched an investigation into the acquisition of Giphy by Facebook. 
TechCrunch reports that the Competition and Markets Authority, or CMA, will specifically look at, quote, how and if the deal will lessen competition in the two companies' respective markets. Per the report, the CMA further noted that while its investigation is ongoing, Facebook can't continue with activities related to the acquisition unless it has prior written approval from the CMA. This includes integrating the products, integrating the teams, or working on business deals or contracts together. Facebook and Giphy both have confirmed to the CMA that they are complying with the order. And there's also some context from TechCrunch's Ingrid Lunden again, saying, quote, Facebook has had mergers investigated by the CMA before, although it's never really been given a hard ride through any of them. Perhaps most notably was the company's $19 billion acquisition of WhatsApp, the hugely popular messaging platform. So it will be interesting to see if the CMA exercises more foresight, or at least better hindsight, with this deal rather than just going through the motions. The European Union is planning formal antitrust charges against Amazon over its treatment of third-party sellers, the Wall Street Journal reported. This would become the first time the EU makes formal antitrust accusations against Amazon, and more on this topic in the next segment of the podcast. In the meantime, these are some of the most important European tech news stories from the week of June 8th. I'm Annie Musgrove. Now back to Andre. Annie, thank you so much for this catch-up. And now, as promised, let us talk in a bit of a more detail about the reported plan of the Commission to bring formal antitrust charges against Amazon. The Wall Street Journal reports that the charges could be filed officially as early as this week. Uh, the journal's sources said that a draft of the charge sheet has been circulating within the Commission for a couple of months now. The whole thing, however, is not very new. It is a result of a probe that's been in the works for about two years. And about a year ago, uh, in the 11 months to be precise, the Commission opened a formal antitrust investigation into the topic. And we talked about it on this podcast together with Natalie Novik. So let me just play a fragment of that episode to give you an idea and refresh my own memory. So the European Commission opens a formal antitrust investigation into the working practices of Amazon. And the main question that the European Commission is looking for an answer to is whether Amazon uses sales data on its platform to gain an unfair advantage over third-party sellers who offer their goods on the same platform. So basically, obviously, there are uh, quite a bunch of uh, smaller companies uh, selling their goods on Amazon. And then the question is whether Amazon can collect uh, the data about uh, what works and what doesn't, and then use this data to basically overcompete uh, these uh, people uh, on its platform. Uh, the investigation of the European Commission is headed, obviously, by no one else but the competition commissioner, Margaret uh, Vestager, who is well known for being a pain in the back for so many major tech companies operating in the European Union, including Facebook, Apple, Google, and so on and so forth. So here is a short quote uh, from her. The quote begins, e-commerce has boosted retail competition and brought more choice and better prices. We need to ensure that large online platforms do not eliminate these benefits through anti-competitive behavior. I have therefore decided to take a very close look at Amazon's business practices and its dual role as a marketplace and retailer to assess its compliance with the European Union competition rules. The quote ends. Actually, interesting, uh, an interesting note here that this could be the last investigation opened by Vestager uh, because her tenure as the competition commissioner is due to end in October this year, thus in uh, three months. 
And that's really interesting uh, what uh, what happens afterwards. But back to the investigation, according to the statement uh, by the commission, it will look into two particular aspects of uh, Amazon's uh, working practices. And I'm going to do some free quoting around here. So the first, uh, the first aspect is the standard agreements between Amazon and marketplace sellers, which allow Amazon's retail business to analyze and use third-party seller data. In particular, uh, the commission will focus on whether and how the use of accumulated marketplace seller data by Amazon as a retailer affects competition. So that's uh, what we already mentioned. And now comes the second aspect, and that is the role of data in the selection of the winners of the so-called buy box and the impact of Amazon's potential use of competitively sensitive marketplace seller information on that selection. So the so-called buy box is displayed prominently on Amazon, and it allows uh, customers to add items from a specific retailer directly into their shopping carts. And winning the buy box, according to the commission, seems... A key for marketplace sellers as a vast majority of transactions are done through it. As usual, we have no clue at all how long this investigation will take, uh, so we will update you when we hear more. What we do know is that there was another investigation into Amazon's practices in Europe that ended just now. This one was in Germany. It took eight months uh, to be completed. It started in November last year, and Amazon just got out of it. And uh, it, uh, the investigation itself, it resulted in Amazon changing a lot of uh, uh, things in its seller terms. And the changes were made worldwide and not just in Germany or in Europe. And uh, the changes made, they concern uh, uh, stuff like liability provisions, uh, some non-disclosure agreements, uh, the exclusivity of court of jurisdiction, uh, for the sellers and so on. And simply speaking, the new terms uh, that Amazon had to introduce, uh, they are supposedly much better for the sellers. So this is a kind of a win uh, for the European authorities. And I am really curious to see whether things will get better after this uh, European Commission's investigation is over. Now, Natalie, you are the big lover of the big tech. Uh, what do you think of uh, this one? Well, I don't know if um, that is accurate to say, but <laughs> what I will say is that Amazon is certainly a worthy adversary for Vestager's last investigation as competition commissioner. I was um, disappointed that she did not um, become commission president as there were some rumors that were suggesting that she might take the helm of the commission itself. Um, so I'm really looking forward to the outcome of this. I think everyone kind of under is on the, on the EU side here um, with the investigation. So I'm uh, looking forward to seeing what that, what comes out of that. Well, as we know now, this was not, in fact, the last investigation for Ms. Vestager, who has kept her competition commissioner post while also becoming a vice president for Europe Fit for Digital Age. So it's been a long time coming, uh, this whole thing, and this week we may hear the official position of the commission on the issue. However, let us just keep in mind that an actual decision on the matter can take at least another year, and after that, Amazon will still be able to appeal that decision in an EU court, so most probably it's going to be at least two years from now that any uh, certain decision is made. If 
However, at the end of the day, the court decides that Amazon is in fact in the wrong, the company can be forced to change its business practices and pay a fine of up to 10% of its annual global revenue. And based on 2019 figures, that would be some 28 billion US dollars. In the grand scheme of things, uh, this is just one of at least nine different antitrust cases against North American tech giants that are going on in the EU. The journal had a very nice and simple infographic showing the progress on all nine cases, and I will put it in the show notes. Uh, so one of these cases is the investigation against Intel, and that one is already at its end. And then there are three more that are reasonably close, and then the rest are likely to take another year or two or even more. So there is a lot to uh, be watching here. And the way the European Union is going is quite obvious, even though a lot of these cases are not at, it, at their end yet. And uh, this course of actions uh, has already been very nicely outlined uh, by the Competition Commissioner Magreda Vesteger in a speech this March at the College of Europe in Bruges. I'll just gonna uh, let you hear it. We may still find ourselves dealing with platforms that have become so dominant that they are effectively private regulators, that they have the rules, or they have the power to set the rules for the market that depend on those platforms, because they basically own it. And that doesn't necessarily have to cause harm to competition. If they use that sort of de facto regulatory power in a way that let fair competition thrive, of course they can do that. The thing is that we know from experience, and so will other competition authorities like the French Autorité de la Concurrence, well, we know from our experience that it's not necessarily so that big companies will do that set rules that cater for fair competition. In fact, our competition enforcement has taught us a lot about the sort of behavior that dominant companies uh, may have. Behavior that stops the markets, which they regulate, from working well. And we can draw on that experience to design regulation that clearly set up what those platforms can do with their power and what they can't. So let us wait and see the next steps from Ms. Vestager and the Commission on this investigation. In the meantime, if you have any opinion on this, please feel free to send us an email to podcast at TechEU. We are very happy to hear from you and uh, uh, the opinions we shall read out loud in further episodes. Now let us move on to the featured interview of the week. And this time it is our editor Robin Wouters talking to LiveBeat, which is an intelligent genomics startup. And I have to say it's a fascinating company in its own right, but it's also very interesting to hear a founder's perspective about a situation in which she needed to renegotiate a term sheet when the COVID-19 outbreak began. So hey, this is uh, Robin here from uh, TechEU, joined here uh, virtually, of course, uh, from London by Dr. Maria uh, Schatzu-Dunford, who is uh, the CEO of a company called LifeBit that just raised funding. Uh, we'll talk about that in a minute. Uh, first of all, Maria, thank you so much for joining the podcast. Thank you for having me. Yes, and please tell us a little bit more about yourself and your background, because you describe yourself as a biotech innovator and a proud geek, which I think is very interesting. <laughs> yes. Um, so, uh, well, I, I started as a computer science uh, computer scientist. 
Um, then did machine learning, turned into bioinformatician, uh, did machine uh, masters in machine learning and masters in bioinformatics, or um, a mix between the both. Uh, and then eventually did the PhD in biomedicine, bio uh, biomedicine and bioinformatics at the same time. Um, and yeah, and then uh, this is actually my second company. My first company was a non-for-profit organization called Innovation Forum. It's still been going strong uh, across three different continents, 200 people plus. Uh, the majority of those is actually working on a voluntary basis, right? Because the mission of Innovation Forum is, uh, is to be the largest network of entrepreneurial scientists, and it actually is right now. So it's doing quite a lot of events and a lot of things. So yeah, so I... I have, as I said, Life It is now my second company, a completely different company from a non-for-profit, <laughs> a very hardcore uh, deep tech biotech company uh, focusing uh, mainly on, you know, building the, the next generation technology needed uh, for revolutionizing uh, the way we analyze and we make sense of genomics, multiomics and big biomedical data. Yeah, we're going to dive into that uh, a bit more uh, in a minute. Uh, thank you for uh, sort of laying out uh, the context first and foremost. Um, you mentioned the term bioinformatics that I'm sure you hear a lot and you know a lot about. For me, it's relatively new. So if you can sort of uh, explain uh, the basics of what, what that actually means and what that concept um, sort of, uh, you know, what, what it entails. Absolutely. So, um, so bioinformatics is uh, basically... Um, is biology and informatics. So basically is using computers and computational methods to analyze uh, biological and biomedical data um, in order to be able to, uh, to assess uh, different things starting from uh, how different evolutionary models work, right? You most probably have heard uh, a lot about um, about your evolutionary clocks or, you know, how different we are from apes and how do we quantify these differences or from primates or uh, the evolutionary tree, right? A lot of these things have been, uh, are now calculated with computational methods where we can actually precisely understand the differences between different species, uh, the, the biological clocks, right? The rate by which, you know, like DNA mutates and we get, you know, differentiate from one organism to the other, and so on and so forth. And that's just the fundamental biology that then extends to translating from everything from like how diseases evolve, uh, you know, why do we get sick, how our bodies respond to that, uh, down to pretty much everything else that you can do. And actually, although the term bioinformatics and the computational side of biology is a fairly new thing, I was literally just introduced into the vocabulary in, in 2000, so early 2000s, uh, so, you know, like uh, you're justified to not know about uh, much about it. Um, but actually, if you if you go even back to Darwin, Darwin was using computational methods, mathematical modeling to try to understand, you know, um, the theory of evolution and everything pretty much uh, on, on how, uh, yeah, how, on how evolution works, right? So we haven't, it's not that, uh, you know, this is a new concept. We were already doing it, right? Since Darwin and even before Darwin. It's just like right now we're using big fancy computers to, to automate a lot of these things. Similarly with calculators, right? We, we're always doing math. We just now have really big computers too and even pocket calculators or our phones to, to actually automate a lot of these things. 
Great. Uh, well, now's your chance to tell us uh, how that translates into your company. Uh, but maybe before you do, sort of a history of the company. When was it started? Why was it started? And sort of how how you got the, the itch to scratch in a way? Yes. So the company started uh, in summer of 2017 by myself and my co-founder, Pablo. Uh, Pablo, very similar uh, background to myself, computer scientist, turned to bioinformaticians, turned to biomedical researcher, turned eventually to entrepreneur. <laughs> uh, we, uh, we started the company because, as I said, our job has always been, um, we were both, uh, taking maybe a step back, uh, you know, like as, as young children, we're both fascinated by big challenges, big questions, and just understanding the universe around us. And especially... And that's why Pablo went to computer science to to play with computers, you know, the magical world. And actually, when I was a child, I wanted to become an astrophysicist because it was just like, oh, my God, you know, there is a universe. And then I think at some point, it both hit us the realization that in every cell of your body, you have a whole universe that you can actually fully manipulate. And it's just like no one knows how it works, right? Contrary to computers and contrary to the universe that I was saying before, you can actually manipulate it. You can measure it. You can run experiments. Um, and then, yeah. And then we uh, eventually, we both started, you know, our, our bioinformatics uh, career path, if you like, and the research path. And eventually we met when we both started our PhDs. And then we we kept working together for now, what is like close to a decade almost. Um, uh, and yeah, and uh, what led to the creation of the company, apart from the passion that we had and the love that we had from the beginning of our lives, is also the fact that our job during our, you know, our research uh, uh, time was to actually deal with this data. We were part of one of the uh, leading institutes in genomic research, one of the top 10 actually that at that point had was producing genomics data on, on a large scale, right? And literally our job was to make sense of this data, put very simply, right? And in our effort to make sense of this data, what was happening is like the majority of our time, more than 80% of our time, was actually lost on the computational hassles and the data management hassles rather than uh, trying to decipher the, the biology and the science behind this and, and focusing on the results of that, right? And that was the beginning where... Um, it started literally from a personal pain where we were like, we need to do something about this. Um, we cannot keep losing our life into this. And then we started creating many different tools and a lot of those things have become now, you know, widely used. Um, and, uh, and then somehow, exactly as these tools were coming widely used, what happened is like our problems become the problem of every person out there, right? Doing biology or doing anything in, in the biomedical uh, space because we started generating so many data, you know, the cost of sequencing went down. Everyone is generating many data and you can very easily expect that in the next couple of years, you know, like even everyday individuals will be able to just like walk into the doctor and just like have their DNA sequence, right? For, and not just DNA. And a lot of time when we speak about DNA, we think, only humans, but there is animals and there is like bacteria in the air and there is plants. There is so many things, right? Um, so bringing back to our story, what happened is like we realized that this problem was not just our problem anymore and it was becoming bigger and bigger and there was nothing really out there. And even the, the couple of like open source tools we created, they were good, but they were just, you know, like, like such a little 
a small part of the whole technology stack that was needed to be created, right? Um, and that's when we jumped to LifeBit, and we and we created LifeBit with with uh, pretty much a dual mission. Uh, the one uh, from a technological perspective, uh, the one was to actually create all just the fundamental uh, technology that will take away all of the computational and data management hassles, and that now has translated into our patented federated technology. And then the second mission is start then on top of that, bringing all of the different data and start creating cognitive systems, right? That will be able to start reasoning, right? Not only taking away the computational and the data management hassles, but start reasoning about the data like humans would, right? And that was the, that is the, uh, the, the mission of the company um, with a general vision that we will be able, uh, as we're doing this, to eventually evolve our technology stack uh, to the point where you just throw data to it and our system completely can actually reason about it, right? In a similar way, if you like, like, you know, Google started with trying to just like, you know, discover some information on the internet to eventually with the vision of like being able to organize all of the world's information, which if you, if I am to draw that parallel, um, it was crazy when Google was trying to do that because it was just like, what world information? You know, like internet had just started. It was just like, and 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 it was even also like inconceivable if you think about it. It was just like, what does that even mean? You know, no one could understand what world information meant at that point. So our story is a little bit the same. We're just like starting, just like we're going to do this. And it was just like, and and when the company started like almost two and a half years ago now, right? It was just like, do even people have enough big data yet out there? Yeah, we'll have, but do they even have it right now? And and how does that look? How how do you reason about it? How do you put all of these things together, right? Like like you know, if you think what Google has come to become, and now you have maps and calendars and Gmail and and the search engine and the ads, it just like. And it's like, whoa, now I can see it. But like, you couldn't pitch that. You couldn't hmm. even imagine that, right? And, yeah, and just bringing, to, just yes, to say sorry. on the same parallel, maybe I'm, I'm interested to know, like you're, all, you're almost three years in now. Um, has it um, gone according to your expectations or have you learned so much about this that you think that your vision is bigger now than it used to be when you started the company? So surprising me how it hasn't changed almost at all in terms of vision. Like I, I tend to go back to, because once we created the company, actually, uh, with my co-founder, we decided to go to Techstars, and uh, we started from Techstars actually, and that's uh, another story on its own. And then within Techstars, we we were very clear on what we wanted to do, and I think uh, Techstars were the only crazy enough to actually just like back us up at that point, and especially Max Kelly, which was the MD director of Techstars at that point, uh, and he literally was a, we had we're having this conversation with him. Uh, because I was teaching the women who tech, um, and then uh, he was part of the judges there. Uh, women who tech startup challenge 2017. I always recommend it for, especially it's for women, pretty much in tech. It's a really amazing uh, crowd of people and a good way to start. And then he was telling me, "You're very elderly. You know, I, I cannot even understand half of the things you are saying." He's, and then he was just like, "You know, something is like, let's have a chat tomorrow." And then when we had the chat, he was like. You know something, I don't. I didn't just came to Texas to just like make money in billion dollar companies, but actually to take risks on things that I do believe 
stand a chance to have such a big impact in the world that will change things. And he had a personal, sort of like you, he had a very personal interest onto the onto the biomedical and biotech sector. So he took a chance on us. And then, yeah, and then it's it, it pretty much uh, started from there. And going back to your question, it's amazing that even when we go back to what we were pitching back then, it's literally, we got it pretty much right on every legal aspect. Of course, the technology, I mean, we didn't even have anything at that point. We just like, you know, we, ha- we had a lot of things that we have done from an open source perspective, a lot of know-how we had during Texas, we created our first, you know, like prototype that was pretty much, you know, falling apart. Um, so technology, of course, a lot of things have changed. Uh, but in terms of like what we needed to build, how we need to build, what needed to be doing, right? We got it pretty much right. And I think that's one of the secrets why the company from a technological perspective and um, and, and a user, uh, uh, user pretty much uh, needs satisfaction has been growing so fast. That's a great answer. Um, maybe this this is a question that I could probably ask you every month, but uh, where are you now on the technology level? Are you close enough to where you're comfortable actually you know, putting this out in the market and saying this is the best of its kind? Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, 100%. It's already out there and it is already the best of its kind, right? Um, and as I said already on, on, on another uh, interview that I was giving, um, what we take most pride on and what uh, pride in and what our investors especially um, find fascinating about the company, especially because I have them work side by side with us, so they've suffered a lot, is actually this this thing that we went from zero to hero, as I like to say, from like literally this being just a vision, you know, um, uh, to actually right now being uh, leading the industry, like um, and and getting rapid adoption and becoming very fast the industry standard. And there are a lot of exciting news that unfortunately I cannot announce, but let me tell you that the the news of the closing the CSA is not the most exciting thing that has happened in this company over the, the past month. Um, but it's not yet out there, but it will become soon out there, right? So uh, it, we're definitely, yeah, we're definitely out there. We're definitely leading and... Um, uh, is the technology evolving? Yes, yes. And if you ask us, like, uh, like I constantly, I, I, I get things and comments from from clients and and from people that join the company that this is incredible. They've never seen something like this. Um, a lot of anyhow, very positive comments. And then internally, we're like, they don't know what they are talking about. <laughs> And we have all of this huge list about things that we need to be doing. And we're moving with the speed of light. Like we we keep pushing and pushing and pushing, right? We uh, counter it. And, and I guess like, you know, like I guess with a similar agility that, you know, characterizes Apple and Google and even Microsoft on their early days, like, like we, we are glad that our, that our users and the people that we serve, like love the technology and it's been proving useful. But to us, it's just like, no, this is not good enough. And every time we're just like, you know, let's go, let's keep doing things, right? Uh, so yeah, yeah. That's, that's pretty much us. Yeah, but I guess that goes for, for a lot of startups, especially the, the ambitious ones uh, out there. Yeah. <laughs> um, 
But the reason that I got in touch with you in the first place is because you just announced some news. You've already alluded to it, uh, but you've recently raised um, $7.5 in Series A funding uh, from a couple of really good investors. I mean, the investors in there, Connect Ventures, Pentec, Beacon Capital. Um, so how was that process for you? I'm guessing you started these conversations before, before the pandemic hit, uh, but how was the process of fundraising in this environment? Um, it was, I, I mean, I'm, I, 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 I would life, I would not say it was challenging and it was a lot of work, right? Um, for me, I've again, I've said it again, when I, I tend to segment fundraising processes into three stages, and I think that helps quite a lot. In the first stage, I, I don't really go and pitch for money. I actually go and just talk to people and say like, I'm gonna be doing this. Uh, and I initially I talked with a close circle of different investors, different advisors, right? And then I and then when I feel I have something, I go again and I pitch this time, but not quite exactly. So like this is what we're trying to do and so on and so forth. And I try to actually and, and I go almost in that process. I just go ballistic. I'll just talk to anyone, you know, even if my grandmother wants to hear the thing. I'll just talk to her and I'll listen to her advice, right? And I try to collect as much feedback as possible, right? And that stage um, is almost like the market research stage, if you like. And I would advise everyone to do that because uh, no matter if you've pitched again, you know, like a year ago, you know, there are new words trending right now. There's new language trending like now. There is, you know, uh, there is new risk profile that is going on to the market, right? There is new pitfalls. And then that, it's and and also just like it's also good it's a good phase in a more relaxed just like saying hello to different investors right and what i try to do in that stage i'm not trying to to get them commit to investing i'm just trying to get the next meeting with them pretty much just like look this is the exciting things we are doing if you find this exciting as well as we do then i would love to have a neck arrange a next chat with you right and that, that's, I leave it there pretty much. And, and then we obviously follow up on different meetings. The second stage that I run the process more the stage after having the meetings and, you know, like then, you know, like narrowing down, right? Like seeing from all of the interactions, right? Who are the investors that are willing to move forward and who are the investors that aren't, right? Um, and at that stage, I try to be, you know, like that is a stage where I'm like, I like you, you like me, you know, it's really great that we keep having these discussions, but if you are to invest, like, uh, I need you to tell me what are the requirements for you to invest. And if we meet those, then that I need to know that you are going to be investing. And if you lead with that, then you can very easily go from like hundreds of people that maybe you are talking to like a very, you know, handful of people that you are told, oh, handful, but like you'll narrow it down quite a bit, right? And then at that phase, obviously, is to keep narrowing, narrowing, narrowing down until, you know, like, people are starting to putting term sheets forward. And that's the point where you are getting that process pretty much, that stage two ends when you are getting term sheets. In this round, we got, um, we got five term sheets. We were very, very happy with the uh, investors that came. It was a very difficult, very difficult choice, actually ending up um, choosing with ID Invest. I must say, I wish I could have had on board also other investors. Unfortunately, you know, from a point on, you know, numbers do not work. <laughs> um, but yeah, so, uh, and that, that was a great outcome. And, and then and stage three, and why there is always a stage three, a lot of entrepreneurs, they feel happy at that point. And this is the stage three where 
pretty much it actually hit COVID. At that, at the time I got my term sheet, we were already in COVID situation, right? Stage three is getting the money in the bank. You are not done until that money is in the bank, right? And a lot of entrepreneurs drop the ball there and they relax and I don't know, they go for vacation or do whatever. No, 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 no. You're not done until you're done. Um, and at that stage, you know, um, things had changed. You know, we did we have in, uh, discussions with our investors uh, about changing, as, uh, as as they put it and we put it, the economics of the round. Uh, yes, we did have that, right? Um, and, you know, less money, less valuation, all of that. Uh, eventually, if you have done those three, the previous two stages, you have already built enough rapport with your investors, right? And you have built enough trust, right? And for me, um, when we were having those difficult discussions, we had to come forward. We have to prepare uh, uh, statements of like how COVID impacts the company. What does it mean for our clients? Historical numbers. What had it mean for you know, when a recession had hit in the past, what had it mean for companies like us? What had it mean for clients that like the clients we are having, right? Uh, how did they behave back then? Like, and then you put all of these things. Um, and I think that in a lot of people like when that was happening, did I like, if you were asking for my feelings, you know, did I lose sleep over it? Yes, I did lose sleep over it. It was just like a night or two that was just like, oh my God, what's going to happen here? Um, did I feel, did I like it? No, no. <laughs> you know, I hated every single bit of it. But do I absolutely sympathize on it? Yes. I mean, um, like I'm, 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 I'm a person that uh, I have a very, you know, like, uh, uh, big professional awareness, if you like, right? And I always sympathize with that, right? Investors need to be doing their job. And ID Invest is a really, really big fund, right? And of course, they have to protect all assets and they have to do processes that extend throughout of the fund, right? So, and they do investments in the range of hundreds of millions and, you know, half of billions, and right? And those processes will trickle down. So exactly like the need, you know, statement thesis and uh, and risk profiles from companies that they invest hundreds of millions, then they need the same for companies that they invest, you know, a couple of millions, right? Uh, although, you know, the couple of million investment, even if you are lowering it or you are increasing it, plus or minus with whatever standard deviation you want to put there, makes zero sense. It makes zero sense and zero impact into the fund, right? Like we'll change nothing for a, a big fund like ID Invest. It could change something for an angel investor, but for ID Invest, zero, right? Uh, so, but they need that, right? And they need, they have governance process as well that they need to follow. So what would advise in such situation, no matter what it is, no matter from where, you know, the, the thing is coming, like a, a job of a CEO is, is, is to be the soundboard of all of that, is to be collecting all of that and say like, okay, this is what's happening, right? This is what it means for us. This is what it means for our clients. This is what historically this means, right? And that's what I advise everyone to be in, not panic. And say so like, now let's have a mature discussion and not an emotional one about all of the different options that we are contemplating. If it is change of the economics of the round, if it is anything else, let's see if we do that, what will it mean, right? And that's the discussion I had with my investors and, and um, 
it was a lot of work and a lot of preparation before the discussion, but it took one discussion because high caliber investors, professional investors, it won't take more than that, right? They were like, Maria, we understand. Nothing is going to change. We're keeping forward with that, right? And uh, and that was also for us, you know, like a good proof point that we did the right choice when we went for ID Invest. And also for also our existing investors were backing that up uh, fully as well. So that's Absolutely. a little bit of my story. <laughs> Yeah, well, absolutely great that you shared so many um, detailed insights and advice. I think that's it's quite useful and, and helpful for a lot of people listening. Um, I'm going to wrap it up with a question that I almost never ask, um, <laughs> but I'm going to make an exception because you are a scientist and a biotech entrepreneur. Um, what do you think about uh, how the pandemic is, is playing out globally? How do you see this evolving in the next few months? Uh, that's, a, that's a question I always get lately from pretty much everyone, my family, my friends, and all the people pretty much I know. Um, it's a really sad situation. And, um, you know, like uh, my grandmother is still alive. Fortunately, I lost all of my other grandparents. And I fear every day for her life, right? She is on the critical, uh, on the critical group. Um, and I can only barely imagine what that means for people that they've already lost loved ones, right? So it's a very, very sad situation. Um, and unfortunately, this we don't have a vaccine yet. We don't have a treatment. So it's going to keep being ugly and sad for quite a while, right? Um, I know that sometimes, you know, starting from President Trump and other people, there are a lot of things out there that, you know, like... Um, People are trying to clinch on, but the reality is that to bring a vaccine in the market at a minimum, it will take six months. So we're not going to be having a vaccine in the market before winter time, right? Like just the production, everything, right? And it's not just the production of the vaccine, it's also the safety. You just don't blast, you know, you don't go and eat soap or <laughs> get disinfectant, you know, because it has, you know, it, it, it can kill you, right? And it will kill you, right? Similarly, we, even if we see that the vaccine is effective, we cannot just, or a therapy, we cannot just blast it out there to the world, right? There are safety checks that have to pass. Everyone, and I, for me, as I said, I've been in this sector for almost two decades right now. I've never seen this level of response, right? And not from startups or research that are in general and much more agile, I'm talking about heavy organizations like the big pharma, the FDA, you know, all of the governmental bodies, the, how fast they are moving. I'm impressed. And even, and, and even in UK, right? Like the, the response, at least from the bodies that can respond very, very, or used to respond very, very slow. It's just like incredible. It's a, and it's an overnight change. And I think it's because we're all into this. It's because we all have a grandmother out there. We all have a grandfather or we all used to have one, right? And we all sympathize with this. Um, ah, from So from a health perspective, that is my short answer. We are all in it. Am I positive that we're going to find something very soon? Yes, I am. We're going to find a vaccine. We already have quite a lot of things on different trials. We have different therapies. Uh, we're going to find something. Is, and it's going to come, right, in the next year. I'm 100% sure about that. That is my health-related answer. But people need to be careful. They need to hang in there. And, you know, if they are in the risk groups, they need to take, you know, they need to be more uh, more careful about things. Um, for government, you know, my, my personal <laughs> uh, position is like, you know, uh, 
humans, economies need to work for humans, not humans for the economies. I think that's my personal position. Uh, I do understand that this has a huge economic impact. I, I as, a, as a CEO of this company, you know, I see it firsthand. Do we even in the company, although life is aggressively hiring, are we having discussions with the board of the company on, you know, maybe if we should be restraining hiring, should be, you know, um, we're not, of course, contemplating letting go of people because there is no reason for life to do that. Uh, but uh, is everything under the discussion on the table? Yes. And I can only imagine what that means in terms of economic terms for companies that do not have the financial support LifeBit has, that are much larger companies than LifeBit are, that people cannot work from home, like all of my employees can, and be equally and even more productive, to be honest, in some aspects. Um, I anticipate with that, but I think like scientists and biomedical researchers and all of the clinicians out there, we have come together uh, you know, like putting aside all our differences, putting aside everything we considered before to be impossible and making it possible and making the whole system work for the health and well-being of the people. I think governments, you know, financial people, CEOs, business people have the same duty to come together and figure out how the economy will work from people because it's clearly not, it's not working and the healthcare system is clearly that it's not working. But we have a duty and they need to actually step up. And again, there are great examples and exceptions out there. I am afraid I'm not seeing the same level of gearing up and response to actually, and willingness to make the economy work for people. Like we're trying to make healthcare work for people, right? And research work yeah. for people. So that would be my general thing. Will we make it work? I think we will, right? And and even if it's ugly and bad, you know, it is what it is, as we always say, in UK, uh, so we need to we need to persevere and we need to push forward. Great. Well, I cannot thank you enough for uh, sharing your uh, personal and professional um, thoughts on this and um, and your message of hope as well. Um, we're up to half an hour, which is uh, quite long for our uh, standards. Yes. So <laughs> thank you so so much for joining uh, the podcast. Uh, again, congratulations on the funding round. I'll be thank keeping you. an eye on LifeBit and, and looking forward to seeing what comes out of uh, you know the rest of the, the journey that you have ahead of you. Um, but yeah, uh, thank you so much for joining and all the best with the company. Perfect. Thank you so much. And this is it for our today's episode. Thank you for listening. I do hope you enjoyed it. Please help us spread the word, tell a friend or colleague about the show and follow our updates on Twitter at tech underscore EU. Audio engineering for this podcast is done by SoundPulse, that is sound-pulse.com. Please feel free to email us with any questions, suggestions and opinions at podcast at techEU. As I said, I am now leaving you in the capable hands of Robin Wouters, who will talk to you next Monday. Until then, enjoy your week and take care. Bye-bye.